0: I grab a bit from here or a bit from here and I just allow it to evolve. For me, the journey would be completely destroyed if I knew the end result from the beginning of the painting. Hi
1: and welcome to episode 95 of Talking With Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger and for those of you who might be listening in the future, I'm recording this in August 2020 and since I recorded the last episode, most of the state of Victoria's population has gone into stage four restrictions and I can see on social media how hard it must be for everyone down there and I just wanted to say I'm thinking of you and hope it's over in the next few weeks. The signs are looking promising today so good luck. I'm very excited to be bringing you this conversation, which I had recently with Louisa Cherkop. She's a fascinating artist, with her work crossing painting, mixed media, and photo montage. Her ideas emerge from her subconscious. Her dreamlike landscapes are dotted with varying sized figures complete or partial, and forms will appear, some representational, others more abstract, which all go towards creating this surrealist quality, which draws the viewer closer to see what this artist has imagined. She's won several prizes, including the Fisher's Ghost James Gleeson Prize for Surrealism twice, And her work was acquired for the Kadumba Collection, which is one of Australia's most highly regarded public collections of contemporary drawing. And she's exhibited in nine solo shows and many more group shows and has been awarded many residencies. She's also a university lecturer in painting and drawing, and her interest in art history comes through strongly in her work. We had a great time recording this interview in her studio in Sydney. Her enthusiasm is infectious and I challenge anyone meeting up with Louisa to come away anything but uplifted. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com and watch out for a video of Louisa in her studio, which I'll be getting online in a few weeks. I started by asking Louisa what she remembers of art as a child.
0: I have artiness in my family um my grandfather always said he was a bit of a frustrated artist he used to paint he used to oil paint a hobby and my mum she was fantastic used to top her art classes but never took their art any further I was the only crazy one I come from an immigrant family so like you know they always said to me art's never going to bring you any income make sure you teach you know you've got some backup they saw I had talent and skill and and all those things and all the passion you know, um, passion to carry a career. Um, but I used to, I was actually brought, on, um, brought up on a poultry farm in Kasula in Chipping Norton. Right. So my earliest memories of drawing is with a big fat art line texture in my pocket and I used to, um, we used to have a, a laying sheds and I just have very vivid memories of the sun streaming through and the dust coming from the feathers and all that, you know, and me scheming, right, drawing on the back of eggs and turning them upside down so that when they were picked, you know, it was like, hello, you know, (laughs) these faces, the the, the emoji of the 70s, you know, like... And then I got introduced to oil paints at um, 11 years of age and my grandfather got an instructor to come in and teach me oil painting with those um, those paint-by-numbers kind of books, you know, oh, the yeah, Walter yeah. Foster things. And um, he got a guy to come in and teach me how to paint. But he said, what am I doing painting this guy? Because he, he was just watching me. He says... You've got talent," he said. "Everything's going." He got out his canvas and was painting as well. And my grandfather said, "Why am I paying this guy to teach you? He's getting a painting." Yeah, yeah. and you can paint," he says. "No, that's it," you know. Like, and he bought all my oil paints. My oh, grandfather and had. So he, oh, yeah. and
1: you were only eleven. When that, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I don't think many kids, you know, at that age would be starting oil painting.
0: No, he saw that I had something, so he bought me the oil painting box with all the paints and stuff. But it was just. Um, I wanted to do it and he just wanted to foster it a bit. But they never really wanted me to follow the art path as a pure professional, like as a monetary. You ha- I had to have teaching or something to back up, you know, which in most artists say wait, and you know, wait, do bar jobs and things as well on top of the art. You've got to be pretty lucky if your art's bringing you the only income but... Doesn't take like it takes a lot of hard work to full commitment, yeah. So, you
1: well, you did art at school at high school, yeah, obviously. And I think you got into art express, yeah. We were talking I about it yesterday. <laughs> you got into art, Ex- not only did you get into art express, but you also were um, one of three of the students that um, Christopher Allen mentioned in his review of art, oh, art yeah, express. Oh, yeah,
0: my <laughs> one and only review. <laughs> That must have been a thrill. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was a bit actually because I never – when I did the Art Express, I did this massive work that was the size of a double, you know, carport and it was to do with birth studies uh, like about childbirth because I had a phobia about having a baby, you know. I thought I just – I used to faint at the sight of blood and, you know, it was a real difficult thought to be hatching this baby. How does it come out of your belly button, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Like how does it – and so I was looking at Gustave's Glimp, you know, um, like Gustave Glimp, the Danae, the fetal position, and I I bought him Picasso and did this massive work in mixed media and I locked myself for two weeks. And when I came back from the Easter holidays, the art teacher said, he used me as an example in class, he's like, this is what you should be doing, you know, over the whole. Look at this. She's already done her two-unit, you know, major work, yeah. you know. And so I was doing three-unit art as well. Ah, and right. then, then I did a visual-verbal study. I did eight metres of, incidentally, similar work to what I'm doing with the photo montage and it was about children and how they're seen in advertising and media in culture you know in motherhood and all those things and um, three of the panels of that got selected for Art Express but the big one didn't you know and it was at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and you know my art teacher got the biggest thrill because I was his first student to ever make it into Art Express and he even took me for lunch and we went into the gallery together and it was a big thrill for him and oh, he was wonderfully encouraging. Yeah, so um, and that was in 91 and then the Christopher Allen article came out. Actually, when I got the letter, I still couldn't believe that I got in because I wasn't really striving to get into Art Express. It just happened, you know, yeah. and he said, but you're doing fantastic work. So yeah and then so, yeah, yeah yeah
1: well the, the the strange thing about that the follow-on from that is that you know you get an art express you come top in your year you know um you get reviewed by Christopher Allen and then you go and apply for a fine arts degree at uni and you don't get in no
0: nope. <laughs> <laughs> and three students from your own class do and so that was the biggest blow I'd you know, I was a pretty happy kid and I went into really deep depression because back then university was where you studied art. I mean, you know, you. I thought, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm not in a uni. My peers had got in um, lower TERs and hadn't achieved what I had achieved and I had to question the whole system, everything, and, yeah, it was very tough. So what did you do? Um, I found myself getting some advice from a family member to keep busy and I went and applied at TAFE and I thought I'd failed because TAFE was for tradespeople, for mechanics and, um, you know, electricians and stuff. I'd never thought of going to TAFE but I went to keep busy and um, I walked in there. I was a very sheltered, you know, 18 years old and not knowing where my – because I was so interested in everything like – um staged set design makeup theater you know the works I've got so much passion I don't know where to put it so I went to TAFE college and I it was a portfolio and a practical assessment and even till this day I remember the the echoing the sound there was three of the teachers in the staff room and all I remember is uh them saying As I sat down, he said, you sit down, you do the test, the drawing, the still life in the middle of the room. We'll look at your portfolio. Ludicrous. This is ludicrous. Ludicrous. Like, and I didn't even know what the word ludicrous meant. (laughs) This girl didn't get into what? And I heard these footsteps coming out of the... Girl, stop right there. I didn't even, like, you know, get to put a pencil to paper. He said, you're in. We want you. And I thought, okay, I'm in for this two-year associate diploma. And I was learning a lot of stuff mm. that um, I didn't learn at school. And it was all fresh and new to me. And I had great teachers like Roy Jackson and, you know, um, Bob Bennett, David Van Oonen, um, oh, just... So many Deborah Beck, some mm. a lot of national art school teachers, and
1: I wonder whether you learned a lot of things there that you might not have learned if you went and did a fine arts degree straight off at uni.
0: It was because um, we covered everything from sculpture. I guess that's why I'm so interdisciplinary in a lot of ways: um, sculpture, photography, printmaking, drawing, life drawing, experimental drawing, objective drawing. You know, we did mm. painting. It, we did everything. And the good thing was at TAFE we could take disciplines into each other. We were encouraged. It was almost like if I had to have an art school, I'd have like a Montessori type of art school where you could move in between mediums to, you know, develop your art practice. And so I was encouraged to do that. In fact, I won. I was. I really wanted to go overseas so I entered this uh, quest through a soccer club like us and I won this beauty quest that it was just ridiculous now when I think of it but... <laughs> it was a lot of fun yeah I went to this soccer team we used to follow and I went to help raise funds because they're all they're all I like doing community things and I went there and I won this beauty quest and then I won this trip to Malta like to go and talk (laughs) on national radio with the prime minister like with it was ridiculous and I I went and my grandfather spoke with me because he's um you know, he was, um, he's in the National Archives with my grandmother in Australia, as immigrants in Australia. So he went to talk about himself too. But I was fretting because I was at TAFE and I didn't want to lose six weeks worth of work. Like, And I wanted to make it up. So I walked into the head teacher's office and I said, what can I do to make up these classes? He said, well, you can come to some evening classes and make up the hours. And I was making up double the workload. I was there from nine till nine at night and just pumping work out. And um, and I think that helped, you know, I was...
1: It was like an intensive process. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it was
0: intensive, all right. And I ended up going then from TAFE to uni after I applied for a scholarship with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was the Basil Muir and Hooper. And I won that. And so I... Didn't look back. I went to the College of Fine Arts. Yeah. And, and then you went on and
1: did your Masters as well.
0: I say did Honours and
1: yeah. then I
0: did my Masters. And then I started teaching straight fresh out of um, college. So right. basically got, my grandparents got their wish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, what, and tell me, like, so at that time at uni, um, what sort of, you know, um, artists were you interested in back then?
0: Oh, well... I went into uni so much better equipped, having all those skills I got in with TAFE, and all I wanted to do is—I uh, was interested in artists because I was, I was exposed to a lot of artists at TAFE. But when I went to uni, it was like I became almost disinterested in artists and just wanted to develop my own practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one of my TAFE teachers, who Roy Jackson, who said to me, "Don't go to uni, just." go out into a studio with other artists, it be, you'll be better off. But, you know, I wanted some qualifications and things and I thought I'd best do that for teaching. Uh, there were artists really, I don't know, really, I just I, used to, I would look at their work. You know what, I remember being more interested in the artists' lives yeah. than their work yeah. because when I looked at their work I was always interested to see how the artist's life came through that because that's how I work in my own practice so that really intrigued me I loved listening to artists just spiel on about basically what we're doing now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just like, like you know what, how they grew up their childhood and all of that sort of thing oh
0: yeah because because yeah. th- it's inherent it's gonna come through the work somehow because it's the subconscious when I left, you know, when I finished uni in, in my MFA, it was expected that you could just go out into the art world like it was a job interview. And, you know, you would load, back then you would load your car up with paintings. And some places they'd just say, look, just rock up, you just walk in the gallery and just say, hi, you know, I'm an artist and are you interested in looking at some of my work? You've got it. they taught you more to be resilient, just walk in there and just, you know, be confident. And I think you know, I would load the car up and fill a gallery, the show and a half of work, and they would look at it and I'd get all kinds of responses. And this was just at a time when technology was changing and that, you know, the CD-ROM would come in and you would put your images on the CD-ROM. Then you had no contact with the gallery. They didn't know what you were like, nothing. You just have to post a CD-ROM or drop us a CD-ROM, you know. But Actually, the old school way of taking the works in was really nice because they had to engage with you. It took you half an hour to unload the car, half an hour to pack it, you know, and they would help <laughs> you pack it sometimes. Did you make you know? an appointment or you just turned up? Some I made appointments and some I just rocked up. Yeah, yeah. You know, and. I can't imagine how many st- people would have done that. Heaps. You know, yeah. In the 90s, like uh, 2000, in the ni- everybody did it that way. Yeah. You know, or you'd take pictures in a book, but. There was nothing like seeing the real work. So, you know.
1: Well, let's let's talk about the work now because your work is extremely distinctive and it is um, absolutely wonderful. I mean, um, uh, probably the best way to sort of get into this is if we talk about a painting in particular because it's hard to describe your work, I think, in a general sense. And although I think – I mean, I wanted to ask you about this – because I don't like pigeonholing people, but obviously I think a lot of the word that comes to mind when people see your work is surrealism. Mm. How do you feel about a an label ism. like that?
0: Isms don't worry me. I think we need more of them in the art world. <laughs> in fact, I think you know the isms died after postmodernism almost, and no one wanted to know an ism anymore. It's old fad, you know. But. I think it, there's nothing more fascinating than artists coming up with their own terminology for a period or movement or something in their art. I think it's part of the creative studio process and part of art history. I think I surrealism, I did for a while try to work out my position like you spend years unlearning your practice when after you've been to university and there's been a lot of surrealist influences in my work, mm. um, Leonora Carrington, Max Ernst, um, Frida Kahlo. You know, um, they've they've all been in my writings. But at the same time, I thought I'm not sure about this label being a surrealist because you know, Louise Bourgeois said I'm not a surrealist, I'm an existentialist. Mm. But then there's something about being existential through surrealism that there's they almost like cross over each other and I think the surrealist period is most probably one of the greatest periods in art history that really changed art for everybody the surrealist group had the most inclusive amount of women there was wasn't many of them but they were there and even if they were there as muses um either negative or positive, you know, they were there. And so um, surrealism for me, I've always worked with my inner. so And I think you're either an artist that really loves to look out and work from objective reality or you're an artist that works from in or you might use aspects of both, which I do. And I think, um, you know, I'm an artist that looks out to look in that's the way I work. So when when so I suppose one of the Oh no. Does that on. answer your question? Yeah, it does answer my question. No, but when you win like, you know, when you're entering prizes, then you win the James Gleason Surrealist Award for Surrealism <laughs> at Campbelltown <laughs> Regional Twice, you know. Yeah, exactly. You start to question Maybe I'm a surrealist.
1: <laughs> well, look, you know, you can't, you, we can't um, sort of um, deny that there are huge real uh, surrealist elements in the work. So things like, uh, you know, disembodied limbs um, yeah. and, you know, dreamlike scenarios. But people
0: use the term surreal, I feel, quite loosely. They'll describe a work as, oh, it's so surreal, you know, like it's like 70s, so yeah, like, right. you know, trippy, you know. Like I just think, no, it's, Surreal is a certain quality, but for me, surreal really is about excavating from the subconscious. It is true. It's true to that, you know, and as James Gleason kind of put it, you know, it's, you know, it's about this awakening, this fruition of, you know, daytime reality coming from the nighttime of the subconscious, you know, and that's the way I work. Like, and I guess in a sense that's why my work, is walking the line between institutional and commercial but it's a it's it's a specific audience but it's also a broader audience it's it's is a dichotomy double dichotomy happening within the practice and that's what makes it more difficult because i i schism around a bit you know i go into portraiture and landscape and things and being a figurative artist people always going to read your work like they're going to attach themselves to things in it so You know, you can punctuate. I could paint a portrait and punctuate it with things that are recognisable, which change the meaning because of the semiotics in the work.
1: Well, why don't we talk about this painting that's right next to us here, which is fantastic. It's called Juz Kitson, Imitating Venus. And, of course, Juz is a – she's an artist, she's a sculptor, ceramicist, makes amazing um, sculptures and it's it's a big painting like it's over two meters high and over a meter and a half wide i think it's 180 or something wide now i'll just describe it briefly so that people have an idea it's there's like jazz. there's two sort of figures in a way there's jazz on the right hand side which is a representational um, depiction of her uh, the only thing that is probably not representational is the fact she doesn't have arms uh, and on the left-hand side, there is a very similar shaped sort of form, but it is like basically a conglomeration of like limbs and forms and like things that look a bit like her actual sculptures as well. So can you tell me a bit about this work and how it, you know, like how it exemplifies your your practice generally? Yeah.
0: Well, firstly, I'd like to say when you're entering the Archibald, I think it's important that you connect with the subject. There's been some subjects I connect with more than others Um, because when you read the terms of the Archibald Prize, you know, the form and that, you know, subject in politics, letters, signs that known to the trustees, it's almost like cryptic, you know. You kind of go like, (laughs) what are they wanting here? Someone famous like, you know, Louise Hemans, you know, like kind of um, Barry Humphreys, you know, or, you know, or. Can I win with a self-portrait of me? Am I known to, you know, to the trustees because I've been entering for so many years, you know? So I always believe like I've actually had this conversation with another artist before. Like for me the challenge is, uh, you know, you can almost see the painting. I don't don't see the whole painting but you can almost see a – Kind of um, the word i 'm looking for is like a congealing of you know parts that actually are coming together before you 've even started the painting, so you know jazz i I was an acquaintance of jazz I had been to her first ever exhibition at um, Flinders Street in Sydney. When she graduated from nas and and I had a already an empathy for her work because i 'm a sculptor as well, and I was making ceramic pieces myself almost not the same type of forms, but they had an empathy to with her work so um, and that show her work her work left an impression on me already. I felt like I knew a lot about this person, and I just um, sent her a message through social media like. Oh, she do. Yeah. That's it's great. And I just said to her, you know, um, are you interested in sitting in the Archibald? And she didn't take long to get back to me. She No, I'd love to do it when you want to come down. So I went down, did some drawings of her. She's really busy, you know, she's been going back and forth to China, um, doing her she's got a studio there and that. And um I slotted in some drawings and some photographs and she was fantastic with her poses and I just saw a dialogue between her and Hans Belmer. So Hans Belmer is a German surrealist um, and quite controversial work depending on which aspect, perspective you're coming into it from um, contextually or through the subject matter, you know. And um, the connection, I wanted to kind of make a feminist statement on a male painting, appropriated painting, because sometimes I occasionally do these appropriated works because they – Appropriation is like a sounding board for me sometimes. It's not just reinventing the painting. It's a sounding board and it's like almost like a game of Chinese whispers. Like I think that sometimes if an artist takes time to look at art history through a work of art, they can actually, we're progressively, you know, commenting on history all the time. It's no different to appropriating. It's just lineage moving forward, you know. So when you say appropriating,
1: uh, does that mean taking a work that you admire or something that you is meaningful to you and then you try and reinvent it in a way with your
0: own interpretation yeah, your own psyche into that work it's I mean some some I've seen some works that are what I would consider not very inventively appropriated they're just like reappropriating the message the same message that that artist appropriate again but for me it's not just the sounding board it's a way to Kind of create a multifarious kind of aura around the work that um, the work can be read like i call I call it a diamond onion. you know you've got these layers, but you've also got these facets. And um, it means that the work can actually discourse, talk a lot of different languages, and that, you know, you know a critic can engage with it from different perspectives. You know, the art world can recontextualise the work in many different ways, in which the actual image of the poupée, which is the doll, which Hans Belmer did lots of these kind of f- femme en font images of women, children, which are very controversial, but you either love them or you don't. Um, I can see why people get on edge about them, but I just wanted to be objective about it. I wanted to use his image in which the Art Gallery of New South Wales actually, from what I believe, have an uh, the photograph of the Poupé, which I thought was really interesting perspective coming curatorially from the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, I thought for the Archibald, I thought, oh, you know, maybe there's some kind of connection there to that. Maybe I overthought it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, mate,
0: know,
1: oh, you mate, know, how could I get hung? Do you think they would know that that's what you were referencing? I presume that well, well, some is, the of the trustees, trustees might not. Know. Maybe not.
0: You know, but. I thought there might have been other curators that might have been hanging around because it'd be a great day, don't you think, just to be sitting there oh. going, Oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall oh, no. in that room, you know? Like, and not they that fast. You know, yeah, well, you know, not that. I mean, in many prize room, I mean, I've been on the panel a few times for some art prizes, and it's really interesting seeing. It's almost like opening up a dirty closet, you know, seeing like <laughs> did that artist really submit that, you know? Or, it's really interesting like, you know, oh, they chose that work over that. I'm familiar with their work, you know. But I I look at um I just thought that having that Hans Belmer image and that connection was another dimension. And, you know, and I don't think so- Jazz was familiar with his work either.
1: Yeah, right. And so so when you do that so say you do you, you you are appropriating another work what I presume
0: you are then tapping into your own subconscious Absolutely. Yeah. So how
1: do you do that?
0: Oh, it's just my I think my teaching background, knowledge of looking at works for years and showing students works like that exposure for me has been something that cuz my work has quite different dimensions like it's not cookie cut. Like it's not a formula. I just create work through intuition and I grab a bit from here or a bit from here and I just allow it to evolve. I, for me, the journey would be completely destroyed if I knew the end result from the beginning of the painting. So, you know, sometimes some paintings are more formed in my head, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they get destroyed through it. I don't have any clear cut process. What I wanted to do when I thought of Hans Belmer is that I wanted to create a painting about, this is such a deep painting, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated. And when I put it on social media, I got so much deep, like, responses. Like, you know, I was disappointed didn't get in, but um, well, I was I just, proud yeah, of the painting, yeah. you know, because,
1: but, you know. It is a bit, you know, one of the, resp- I did, mm. I posted this painting when I notified my followers on Instagram mm. that I was going to be interviewing you. And one of the responses was a bit disturbing. Yeah. Now, you must sometimes get those
0: responses. All the time. Do you? <laughs> yeah, because, <laughs> you do know. How feel about that? I love it because, firstly, my work is all about enigma. You know, enigma comes from the Greek word to speak darkly, you know, and you need light in darkness anyway. It's there. But people just quickly gravitate to, you know, there's this gravitas towards dark. Oh, it's, you know, a bit grim and all this. But if if you sit there long enough, you'll start to feel the light.
1: Well, also, it's interesting that you are um, doing these amazing, really large works on paper now. Yeah. Um And they're beautiful. I mean, I think they're watercolour. Well, they're mixed media basically, aren't they? Yeah. Um, what is it about the paper that you're interested in? Like do, are you sort of really gravitating towards that at the moment?
0: I, my practice can be so diverse if I let it go because <laughs> of my TAFE training. Yeah. I want to do so. I'm a sculptor like, you know, uh, and, and a painter really. Yeah. I want to go off on every tangent. So the paper for me is a way of satisfying my painting, my drawing, the mixed media is a way of kind of getting physical with the with the paper you know like i can with sculpture mm. but the paper allows for these kind of experimental things that um sometimes with the oil paint the dynamics of the paint you can't get like because i work in oils i work in acrylics i work you know acrylics over oils i work on linen i work on canvas i work on boards Like, Mm. I'll work on whatever's at my disposal if I have to. But paint and surface respond differently to each other in every environment. Like, depends on... I always talk about this in my teaching, like, you know, mediums, supports, materials, you know, like how you can get a different response from the same, you know, same medium on a different surface and all those things. And paper mm. really does it for me. In fact, when I buy paper, I buy a smooth pack and a and a medium pack. I'm not so keen on the rough stuff, but okay. yeah, I just buy the smooth and the medium and however I feel on the day I go, okay, right. Smooth
1: or rough? Like a <laughs> That's interesting because one of the most fascinating things I saw on your Instagram was that Kiata Mason, who was a yeah, was a, a podcast friend, guest and a friend of mine, yeah, she had sent you these um, prints of Joshua Reynolds' sort of oh, works yeah. from. Yeah, I yeah. think looks like the nineteenth century or something. Yeah, and you had started on that. You had decided to do mixed media works on top of those as like that they, <clears> they were a base
0: because when you've got artist friends and you talk to each other, like you know, you check on each other during the week and see how you're going, and you start feeling a bit maybe low in energy or something and she's i guess it was like a gesture of um like kind of goodwill to say you know you're feeling low have a play with these because she actually knew that i used to paint on postcards and placemats i did a series and holy Mm -hmm. cards i used to do all that and i've got a deck of cards from over 20 years ago turner's deck that i painted why don't you just have a play? Don't get so serious, you know, and she sent them to me through. I didn't know they were coming to me. She wrapped them up with a personal joke and they came in the mail and you know what, I didn't care at the time. I was really enjoying the gouache and how it was responding to this lithographic surface and all of a sudden I decided to see if I could get some more of these, you know, so I went online and realised they were like $80 each. Like, (laughs) going on eBay for like there and a friend of mine Philippa, she she said to me did you think maybe you should photocopy them and then work on them and i said to her no because i won't get the same response from the this lit, oily kind of lithographic surface i said nah that's what it's all about for me i'm going to just like you know work over the top so i just did and um so I've kind of gone back to a bit of that play again because you kind of forget. And actually, Idris Murphy, who was a lecturer of mine at Kofa, he said, "Go back. It always pays to go back to your old works. Just revisit because you don't realize how many times that like, you could be recirculating that your your empathies through the work." You know, and I I look back and I saw that you know I had been recycling you know these images. And I thought, well, maybe I need to return to that sense of experimentation and play again because it's just a, I work really well on paper, but I don't like to set, I don't like to feel like I need to feel too set in a media as an artist, like, you know, I have to be an oil painter or I have to, you know, paint like this or work in that, you know. For me, it's a very romantic, fluid thing to be able to, yep, finish that and work with different papers not ashes or just work with vintage paper you know or cut up i cut up a lot of pornography books and time magazine and you know um national geographic and children's books and quite often i'll go in a op shop and it's a really expensive book i want to cut up but i just say i tell them the truth i'm an artist i just want to cut it up (laughs) No, there's something
1: about oh, feeling guilty about have, cutting yeah. up books but yeah. talking about revisiting works it's interesting that also I saw on Instagram was um you were referring to earlier paintings you had done and that you had found and that you and it was a very low time in your life that when you painted mm. it and you couldn't even remember painting it i found that so fascinating oh, now let
0: me think was that um, it's quite a
1: dark painting
0: oh was it the one hand coming up from a rock that's when i had postnatal depression mind you that lasted for 8 years um yeah, it was a, a long time. But I still made work. And actually I did an interview with Eastside Radio um, while my daughter was still quite little and talked about how I actually made art during that period. And a lot of it was performance-based, like after washing the dishes, the, resi- the residue of the food in the actual sink because I had this really old kitchen mm. and this sink and the light coming through. I would just get out my iPhone and just kind of take a photograph of the sink as if it was a an abstract painting or I'd make like jars of apple jelly from scratch you know for her and every time she finished one I put it up in the sunlight and photograph it Mm -hmm. you know and so there was the nurturing the making side and the doing you -hmm. know and that kind of time lapse of daily household chores and then the product yeah, oh, that's know, so interesting. Well, that's yeah. it's so interesting that
1: even you obviously were consumed by that life of having a baby, but still your creativity was still just driving through. It,
0: and it's sincerely, art never left me, ever.
1: Most of the figures in your paintings are women, and there are some men sometimes, but they're usually interacting with a woman so mm. either in a romantic mm. or a sexual way. Mm. Um, what, why do you think you, you focus on that aspect, particularly in your work?
0: I think there's just an instant empathy with um, women in history, women in the art world, women as mothers, women as mothers in the art world, um, women as a muse, as an object, yeah, women as an underdog. Mm. Well, it leads me on to
1: um, the, you know, one of the, the processes that you use because you use photomontage in many of your works and they often are parts of the bodies of women that, mm. that you cut out and, and put into into the works. Mm. Um, can you, I'm really interested in that aspect of your work. And it's probably more, we're talking about process a bit more now, mm. but what, you know, have you all, is this an important um, part of your work when you're sort of trying to decide how it's all going to fit together?
0: It is because it's the pieces that you don't see and when the viewer looks at the, those pieces, they're looking for other connections in the work that might kind of draw some meaning, what's going on, you know. A lot so of do you the
1: time- mean the parts of the body that aren't on there? Is that what you mean? That yeah, are missing?
0: yeah, like sometimes there is no head. You know, I've just chopped the arm off at the shoulder. I've basically dissected the body through the shoulder around the breast. I've kept the interesting tactile parts. I'm a sensual person and I'm a sensitive person and I bring that through my work, you know, and I guess, well, hang on, I'll come back around The Garden of Earthly Delights, Hieronymus Bosch. Like, you know, I talked about Gauguin being that influence of that painting. Well, if there's any other painting that's, or artist, that's, for me, inspirational in the sense that there's some connection to my life or my childhood or something, it's Hieronymus Bosch. You know, Garden of Earthly Delights. You know, I was brought up in a very strict Catholic family, church-going, you know, my like that, some my, like let's just say, look, one of my experiences might be if I ever swore, you know, this it sound it, it's not it's not child abuse, but it's techniques that parents used back then. You know, like my grandfather would get a lighter and say, "You say that again, I'll burn your tongue." You know, like yeah, it's yeah. like it's like the same tactics that the Catholic Church uses. If you sin, you'll go to hell. Mm. You know, and I I feel like you know what is sin venial sin, mortal sin. You know a sin of commission, a sin of omission, you know, all these things that are in theology. And I look at the Garden of Earthly Delights, I just see a mass orgy of pleasure and pain, you know. (laughs) Like I just, I look at it and I go, you know. And, you know, the one thing about the Garden of Earthly Delights is like these like pools, these like portals of people that are, You don't know if they're having fun or if they're like (laughs) drowning or like,
1: you know. There's a lot of activity going on. Yeah, there's
0: a hive of activity. It's the most, and it's huge painting. And it's, it's, there's almost this drost effect going on in it. There's a like, you know, like a painting within a painting within a painting, you know. It's really interesting. And so all that theology, all that philosophy, all those images all my core beliefs, all my childhood experiences come out naturally through my subconscious in my work. Like it's I was reading this book by it's Philip Gaston book there, it's a conversations and he talks about John Cage saying something to him once where you go in your studio and you um walk into your studio with your, you know, your art world, your enemies, your Um, your thoughts in your process your past you know and you begin to work and then slowly one by one those elements begin to leave until you're by yourself facing the work and then if you're lucky enough even you will leave the work and I think that's a magnificent it sums up the process for me because I always thought it was just me until I started reading this book I think I'm coming into my studio every day but I feel like I'm the judge and the you know juror and the you know the prosecutor and all at once because you walk in with all this baggage Mm. and then you use I guess my art's very cathartic for me but you walk in with all this baggage and as you create the most beautiful thing is that it comes through frustration not through satisfaction so you know it's Frustration is one of the most amazing... That's where the enigma is for me, you know, this frustration. I'm not thinking about making a great painting. I'm thinking about what's good for the painting.
1: So you mean frustration as to making it work?
0: Yes and no. More... The hardest thing for me is there's a sense... There can be a sense of satisfaction, great, this work's, you know, finished or I'm happy with the work... But I'm not looking for the satisfaction when I start the work. Like I'm just looking to unearth something. It's not, I don't, like like I said to you, there's no cookie cut process for me. Mm. It's, I could end up destroying part of the work or adding an addition that changes the complete dialogue.
1: Now, we were talking before about, you know, your depiction of women in your work, but also um, I should point out that you're also a great supporter of women in the arts in in Australia and you actually are the founder of a women's art collective called Movers and Shapers and your first show was called Women in the Land, which I actually opened. Thank you for asking me to open. It was (laughs) a My pleasure. You
0: were the best and most unique. (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: one word for it. Well, Uh,
0: you gave a whole running commentary on every single artist in the show. All I could see were people's heads going east, west, north, south. <laughs> they were so...
1: Well, the difficulty was it, there were 19 brilliant artists. They were fantastic. And I just was. I just wanted to say something about all of them. Look, it was a really fantastic show at, at Hazelhurst Art Centre. Can you tell me a bit about, you know, what got Instigated you started? That. what Your vision for that group and what, yeah, and the instigation of well,
0: it. Well, firstly... It was my relationships with female artists, you know, and I had this conversation with Key about this um, Kater about, and she was talking to me. We should be out more in the landscape. Let's go and do you know, do the motivate, motivate, motivate. Well, if we're going to do this, let's do a show out of it, you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> well, yeah. if 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 you're going to do a show out of it, where are we going to have it? What are we doing? You know. So I put an application because I, I work at Hazelhurst Regional Art Centre, and Carrie Kibler at the Arts Centre. She's just amazing supporter of women in the arts and she's fabulous with artists. She's just fantastic. So I just um, put the application in and I succeeded with it. The idea was like I'm not a landscape painter but I can paint the landscape. This isn't about one kind of channel into how you approach the landscape. Like it's not about on-plain-air painting. It was about women enjoying each other's company, camaraderie, responding to the land, that I had never seen that happen in art history in Australia. Like it had been quite a masculine activity for many, many years. Um, it had also been uh, Indigenous, like sacred, you know, activity as well. And I think that I wanted to have a group where it was almost like an Indigenous model, women's circle like where the elders and you know the the younger generations work together like you know how indigenous like the aboriginal culture actually work together and learn basket making or their their skills within that certain group you know they share those skills from it's like your grandmother sharing it to your mother to the granddaughter to the child you know and so i wanted to to take away the pretentiousness in the art scene where you know you've got really well-known artists who are working in I wanted to keep that level of respect but I wanted this all-inclusiveness where those girls would be so proud to be showing alongside somebody who's been in the scene for a long time and that it was just purely about that model or like an even in in immigrant countries, like you know, like um, even in like Italy and Malta, like where my family are from and stuff, like generations lived under the one roof, yeah. and it was that same. That's what was coming through me. That because the generations are living under one roof, you're learning those skills from your grandmother and your mother, and that so they're handed down. But there's this sense of working together yeah. to achieve the goal. So I wanted to create that, and I saw so much kind of prospect in having another show but doing a sculpture one, doing a photography, doing an installation-based show and inviting women writers and women curators and then taking this and filling in regional gallery programs around Australia because the regional galleries are actually suffering. They suffered with the government funding with all the cuts. And mm. I thought, well, th- I find as an artist I empathise because you need some sometimes somebody to help motivate. We're all human. Yeah. You need sometimes a kick up the backside to go, you know, come on, get back in there, you know, brush to canvas kind of thing. And it was just wonderful to see how much happiness it was that they were achieving something with their art practice because let's face it, a lot of people might say it's a selfish, indulgent <laughs> thing being an artist. But, you know, if you're born to be one and you've got your in you've got it in your blood, then as soon as a woman has a child and they're bound to they have less time, it does detract can detract them from their practice. Yeah, like it's definitely. something they, bat, they battle with.
1: That's right. And mm. tell me what, um, you know, I often ask my guests what, um, you know, what conditions they need in their studio to get into the flow of painting. Can you tell me a little bit about your routine and um, how you sort of get started in the day? Oh, gee,
0: I can work for 12 or 14 hours a day straight. Like I can be in the studio. And then other days I might do six or seven. Sometimes I'll come down and do a few hours if I really wanted to be in the studio and couldn't get there. Like, so I'll come and cut, you know, and do things. So do you find that
1: you've always got a number of things on the go and you can just get into you just slot into it straight away? I think
0: the hardest thing for me is balancing all these applications for things like the writing the co- organising careers, the art prizes, the aspects of you can be an artist that never focus on those art prizes but that helps propel my practice a bit because the art world seeing my work in art prizes, yeah. in panels and stuff. And that's, for me, one of the most important things. Whether it gets rejected or not, you've got to th- thicken up your skin. Yep. Um, but someone's seeing your work. It's not sitting in your studio. Mm-hmm. So, And they can be from curators to artists to whatever, they're your peers, you know. And I think um, for me, having those dimensions in the art practice, I enjoy them but they're frustrating. I mean, I wish I was making enough from my art practice that I could pay somebody to do a bit of the administration side of things because at the moment that's pulling me, pulling a bit of energy out of the practice, that's all. Yeah. Now...
1: Twenty twenty was was like a jam packed year for you. You had like two Mm. residencies, I think four group shows. You were going to put another movers and shapers show up. You know the sculpture show. So, (laughs) you know you're gonna you you had a really full year. So at the moment, so what? How is your energy at the moment? Like what have you adjusted for that? What are you What are you doing for the rest of the year?
0: Oh, I've had to say to myself, this year's a clean slate. Like you know, wipe the slate. I think that next year should just repeat itself basically all the shows that I've been in should you know move forward whatever can what's most practical because I've even had the residencies overseas in France and that you know in Calou they're kind of contacting me saying when would you like to come back I'm like don't you know that the government's like- <laughs> you're not allowed to fly <laughs> you know, out like we can't fly out yet but is it possible <laughs> to keep roughly the same time because it doesn't affect my academic year teaching and by then if there's a vaccine, I'll be able to travel because I, I won't be able to travel without a vaccine. And um, so I have uh, basically been shuffling everything forward and this at the moment I've just thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to work on building up a, another solo show so it's actually in front of me like I don't have to work stress too much for it it's in front of me and i'll just if i create a few works in between i'll just enter them in prizes and so i'm actually just um whatever's left from my last show i've entered in a few prizes and um
1: yeah yeah oh, i must say that that they're just magnificent works thank you yeah and louisa so good luck with everything um mm-hmm. that's coming up And it's been such a pleasure talking with you today in your studio
0: oh thanks for asking me it's been a total pleasure thanks maria
1: What a great artist and a lovely person. It was so great catching up with Louisa Cherkop. Go to the website for links to things we talked about and watch out for that video of Louisa, which I'll be getting online soon. Don't forget you can subscribe for free to not only the podcast on your favourite podcatcher, but also to the YouTube channel, which you can find if you Google Talking With Painters YouTube. And there's over 100 videos on there now of my fabulous podcast guests. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.
0: I'm open to the mystery, of the, and I think that's been the hardest thing in my art career to deal with, is that my work is forever evolving. If I reach a point where I'm, I get to my work where it looks consistent, I feel like my work is dead, like... But people say, I see that there's consistency in you. I'm like, do you? (laughs) What do you mean? Does it all look like it's done by me? But no, they can see the Louisa mark. They know what I'm doing. But I don't feel like I'm truly creating unless I'm creating a unique piece every single time.